podcast of the Urban Mystic. In today's episode, we're joined in conversation by T.C. Moore. Now, T.C. is affiliated with the Center for Open and Relational Theology out of the U.S. Um, you might remember in previous episodes, we've mentioned them um, in connection with Thomas J. Witt and then Rory Randall, who was in our previous episode. Um, Tim came across a video that TC had posted in which he poses his own acronym, uh, ROSE, R-O-S-E, in contradistinction to, um, to Calvin's five-point, the sort of classical five points of Calvinism. And we thought he would be fascinating to interview around open and relational theology. He's done a lot of work and writing around that. We start, as always, with his life story and just some fascinating sort of a mixture of, of history and events in his life that's led him to where he is now. I think you'll find that really interesting as you listen in on the conversation with us. Um, but for me, most interesting out of this episode is this rose versus tulip space. And, and I think this episode could be most helpful for those, uh, any listeners who've come from a very conservative, uh, evangelical, reformed, um, sort of space within religion, especially if you have either, you know, knowingly or unknowingly been living out of this Calvinistic, uh, highly reformed paradigm. Um, and so, yeah, let's get across to our conversation with TC. Thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy. Great. Well, um, TC, thank you so much for joining us. Um, for this uh, episode out of our mini-series where we're coming to focus on open and relational theology. Um, it's an exciting little sort of slightly tangential direction for us as a podcast um, outside of our mainline seasons. Mm. But having talked to Thomas J. Wirt at some point, um, it's mm. really just pinged on our radar in terms of open and relational theology and um, then you came on our radar and one or two others, and we thought, why not? Let's just do a short mini-series in which we look into this. Um, but still in keeping with kind of the main thrust of how we operate in our, in our conversations on the podcast, which is really, it centers around the relational aspect of things. So it's um, divine self and others to kind of invoke the Holy Trinity. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll come to the ideas behind open and relational theology and where you stand and how you arrived here and some of your work, etc. Um, but we'd love to start off by getting to know the person because um, that's really the backdrop. That's the context in which all of these, you know, opportunities for change and engagement with new ideas, it happens within us. Um, and so perhaps you can start, I'll give you two, a two-pronger to start with. Perhaps you can give us a little bit of an idea of yourself, a little bit of history, um, but interwoven with that, I'd love to hear about, the question almost presupposes, so I'm going to make it a little bit more general, but what would you make of the question of your first experiences of God? Um, and so if that's enough, to kind of cue you up and you can uh, hit the ground running, then uh, over to you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I was fortunate in some ways and unfortunate in the family of origin that I was born into. Mm. Um, fortunate in the way that my mother was uh, a woman of faith and mm. She was someone who had experienced her own 
suffering and trauma in her childhood. And because of that had cultivated a real sensitivity to God, Hmm. um, particularly through the charismatic movement. So what I understand of her story is that she was raised fundamentalist um, Baptist and Mm. very, very strict kind of rigid upbringing. Um, Mm. But in her late teens, early twenties, fled central Illinois where she was from to Southern California and had a season of sort of prodigal, prodigal life. (laughs) Mm. And, um, and then in the, aftermath of a failed relationship, which uh, resulted in me, my birth, um, Hmm. which was a sort of uh, an affair with a married man. And uh, the outcome of that was that she, she um, was at one point thinking about terminating the pregnancy, but couldn't go through with it. um, Partly because of her fundamentalist upbringing, I imagine but also partly because of what she says was a direct sort of encounter with Jesus. She, she claimed that Jesus sort of appeared to her and said, don't do it. So, you know, I take it, I take it with a grain of salt, but I do know this, that she, after that um, did become part of a vineyard church and was mentored and became sort of um, an active kind of renewed her faith in that vineyard church in Southern California. And that was, Mm -hmm. That was the way that she sort of came back to the faith of her of her childhood. And so when I was very young, mm. this is in, back in Illinois, she, she returned to Illinois when I was younger. Um, so I was born in San Diego, grew up in central Illinois. Some of my first encounters with God were in a vineyard church, uh, charismatic church. Mm. And I remember being both weirded out by some of the manifestations that uh, were, were sort of normative in that church, but at the same time, sort of fascinated. So I think I also cultivated a sensitivity to God in the midst of that charismatic environment. For example, in that mm. church, the Urbana Vineyard, um, there was a lot of people being uh, slain in the spirit. I'm, I'm using air quotes, if you, <laughs> yeah. if you can't see. Um, and being slain in the spirit is... Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, it's an experience of sort of falling down under the influence or power mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit as a result of prayer. And, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that it, it doesn't happen, but I, you know, I just knew that it happened at a much higher frequency in that church than probably was uh, warranted. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that gave me pause and it also, also, aroused some curiosity in me. You know, the, the working of the Holy Spirit was something that I was aware of from a very young age. But I had my own prodigal years from about um, 10 to about 16, l- late 16, almost 17 years old. I was not a follower of Jesus. I didn't have any personal relationship with Jesus other than other than kind of being culturally Christian in a, in a Christian family, right? Mm. But I very, at a very young age, um, because of trauma in my own life, my mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia when I was very young and had several psychotic episodes in which I was taken out of the home and placed in foster care. And, um, you know, because of my, the way I was born, I never knew my biological father. The, the, the man that my, my mother had an affair with um, wasn't part of my life. And so... Mm. 
growing up the only child of a single mother who was also struggling with schizophrenia made for a very traumatic upbringing. So hmm. you can imagine that this opened doors in my life towards other um, forms of connection. So hmm. from a very young age, I was involved in, in gang life. I was affiliated first with gang members in my neighborhood and then later initiated and became formally gang involved. So hmm. there was a lot of criminal activity. Um, you know, I, I experimented with drugs, I sold drugs, I was part of kind of that underworld for a long time. And then when I was 16, almost 17, I had a, mm. um, a couple of near death experiences, I was driving drunk, totaled my car uh, in, during an ice storm, and, you know, skidded out of control, slammed into a telephone pole, and was completely unscathed. And that was kind of, kind of the first wake up call. I also was shot at not long after that. I was shot at for the first time. That was a hmm. big wake up call. I'd been around guns and carried guns and been involved in a lot of fights, but this was the first time I'd been shot at uh, from close range. <laughs> and it was sure. pretty, uh, it was pretty startling and, and terrifying. And, um, and I remember kind of the experience of sort of my life flashing before my eyes, you know, that, that thing that people talk about. My version of that was like hearing people talking about me kind of in a split second, like, oh yeah, you know, he grew up in a troubled home and sort of like, what do you expect? You know, of course mm. he would, of course he would die this way, you know, in a gunfight in a McDonald's parking lot at 16 because, mm. you know, his mom was crazy and never knew his dad and was poor. So I kind of heard those, like the statistics, you know, like m my life being recounted as a statistic. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, um, and also thought to myself, is this really how I want to die? I want to die, you know, for a color in a McDonald's parking lot. This is, this is not how I want to go out. So those were two big wake up calls. And then not long after that, I was invited to a Pentecostal church. My first experience of a Pentecostal church, a close friend of mine who I'd grown mm. up with. He was, um, he, he, he hates it when I tell this part of the story. <laughs> well, he doesn't hate it, but he, he kind of chuckles about it. My we'll make sure to send him a link. <laughs> my experience of him growing up is that he loved to smoke weed. So, I mean, a lot of our early experiences bonding together was around drinking and smoking weed. So we, you know, mm. that was kind of our friendship was <laughs> centered around drugs and, and alcohol. So um, when he came to me shortly after these two wake up calls and said that he had stopped smoking weed and started reading the Bible and um, wanted me to witness his baptism, this was you can imagine pretty shocking, sure. right? Yeah. So he invited me to this Pentecostal church where he was going to be baptized that evening. And I had never been to a Pentecostal church. My kind of frame of reference for Pentecostal churches was what my fundamentalist Baptist family had said about them, which was, you know, the tongue talking Pentecostals swing from chandeliers. And I, <laughs> you know, didn't have any way to, you know, is that true? Is it not true? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I agreed to go because of just the kind of timing of it felt different and also because of who my friend was, right? Knowing that this had made such a big impact in his life, I guess that was somewhat alluring to me, was like, what, why, did, why did he have this sudden change, right? And I was also feeling in my own life, like I needed a change. Something needed to change. Mm. So I went to this church 
but I, I made a deal with him. This is kind of the deal I made with him. I don't want to talk to any church people because I don't have a good track record of talking with church people. That doesn't usually yeah. go well. So I said, you know, I'm going to sit in the back and I probably will arrive late and I'll probably leave early. Um, but I'll see you get dunked if that's important to you. And, and I'll probably meet up with you someplace else to talk about it if you want to talk about it. And he, he agreed to that. He said, that's fine. So I, w- I mm. went to this Pentecostal church in Urbana, Illinois, and something weird, very, very weird happened in the middle of this baptismal service. So there's a whole choir, picture the scene. There's a whole choir up in the choir loft, right? And they're singing in between every person's baptism. Every time someone mm. gets baptized, the whole choir stands up and they sing this like very upbeat, very Pentecostally kind of song. It's got tambourines and it's, you know, it's like this. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, they say the person's name, right? My friend's, my friend's name was Nathan. I called him Nate. So they'd say, Nathan, Nathan, he's on fire. He don't need the devil because the devil's a liar. And it would go on and on like that for a while. Mm. Very annoying song to me. I mean, I just didn't have a lot of patience for church music. And this was a particularly upbeat and cheerful, you know, <laughs> song. Yeah. So I was in the back kind of like grumpy, just like, oh my gosh, do I have to sit through this like ridiculous Pentecostal song you know, over and over again? <laughs> and there seemed to be like several people getting baptized. It was like a whole pew, it seemed like were lined up to get baptized. And I was like, oh no, this is going to take forever. So in the middle of this service that I'm already annoyed by, the Pentecostal pastor interrupts one of these sessions of the choir singing. He stops them mid song. They're clapping and singing and he stops them. And he says, hold on a second, hold on a second, you know, waves at them. Right. And they stop. They're a little confused what's going on. And then he just stands there for a while, the front of the church, kind of like he's, mm. uh, you know, thinking about something, you know, and um, after a, after what seems like an eternity of awkward silence, he says, uh, okay, I'm going to say this, but I have to, you know, I have to tell you that I don't normally say things like this and I don't normally do things like this in a service, in a baptism service. He said, but I really feel strongly like the Holy Spirit is telling me that there's somebody here tonight and there's there's a reason why you're here tonight because you you almost died this week but the holy spirit is saying like you are meant to be here tonight because because god wants to save you it was a very kind of direct appeal um what i remember of it was there wasn't a lot of gospel in it. It wasn't like Jesus died for your sins, you know, or something like that. Right. It was just like, mm. you're going to, you're going to die. Like you're on a, you're on a trajectory towards death, but, th- but, but you're here tonight because God wants to save you from death. So that's, mm. that's kind of like the appeal. It wasn't, it wasn't, Hey, Jesus is so great. <laughs> it was more like, you're going to die unless you get sure. saved tonight. Mm. And, um, and I ignored it at first. My, my first instinct was like, you don't know me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you don't know me. My, that was my first instinct. My second instinct was, wait a second. Hold on. I did almost die this week. And I had been feeling like I needed a change. And what if this is God speaking to me? Yeah. What if, you know, like I, like I believed when I was a kid and I, and I wasn't like, a, I wasn't like an atheist. I, I, I believed in a God, right. Kind of generally. And if, if you asked me if I was a Christian, I would say like, you know, kind of, I would shrug. I'd be like, eh, sure. Whatever. But like, so I had a general cultural faith. So what if this is God speaking to me, right? What if this pastor is like 
tuned in to, <laughs> to God, right? Mm. Um, so I had a pause right there in the pew. I had a kind of a check in my in myself, within myself. And I kind of took inventory, like, like maybe this, maybe, maybe this is for me. Like maybe this is really a direct appeal to me. And mm. um, so I didn't pray or anything. I didn't like say like, you know, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner or something like that. I just kind of went, okay, God, this is you. We'll find out. <laughs> kind of like, you know, like, <laughs> let's be, you know, like, we'll, we'll, I'll put it to the test. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't brave enough to sort of like walk down the center aisle. He, he did this thing where he said, if that's you, if I'm talking about yeah. you come down here right now. And I was mm. not that brave. I was not going to walk down the center aisle in yeah. a room full of strangers in a, in a Pentecostal church. What I did instead was I slunk around the side of the church, like the outside of the church, uh, you know, the yeah. outside pew. And I, and, I, and I squeezed in next to my friend, Nate. And he was like, what are you doing down here? Like, this is the front pew. And this is, this is the pew of people. Getting- that's good stealth mode stuff for a gang man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, and I said, I, I think he's talking about me. Mm-hmm. And my friend Nathan was like, what? Like, like, he didn't know any of this stuff about me almost dying that week. And he didn't know that I was even interested in faith at all, you know. Mm-hmm. So he was like, well, you got you to gotta say something. So he kind of like, I, want, I always say, he, do, he doesn't agree with this, but I always say he dragged me up there. But, you know, like, he at <laughs> least, he at least nudged me. He at yeah. least encouraged physically yeah. Yeah. Um, up there. So I, so I find myself standing in front of this pastor and he's like, is it you? And I was like, mm, you know, I think so. <laughs> so he sends me to the bathroom with a, with a folded set of sweats. They had, they had prepared for impromptu baptisms <laughs> in case anybody just got, you know, filled with the Holy spirit and wanted to get baptized, baptized on the right, on, on the, on the spot. They had okay. prepared for that. Yeah. So he gave me these sweats. I went to the bathroom, came back out and changed and he ushered me to the front of the line so i skipped my friend nathan (laughs) which is so weird right he's there to get baptized i'm not but i get baptized before him so in the in the tank this pentecostal pastor starts saying things to me that i've never heard before he says do you promise to deny the devil the flesh and the world and my in, in my internal dialogue was i don't know what two out of the three of those are but you know how do you deny the world? How do you deny the flesh? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like I don't know. I, I know the devil, right? Like the devil is pretty obvious, but I was like, sure. Mm-hmm. So um, he baptizes me. And this is the, this is the mystical part. You guys are the urban mystics, right? <laughs> yeah. Here's mm-hmm. the mystical part. Mm-hmm. When I came up out of the water, I felt different. Like I felt this is the, the, the physical experience of being baptized felt like a weight lifted off my shoulders. I felt hmm. 20, 30 pounds lighter. Like I'd been carrying around this burden of, you know, anxiety and stress and fear and whatever else, right? Resentment, hmm. anger, all this stuff. And it was like, whew, lighter. Hmm. And because of my mom's mental illness, I had harbored so much resentment against her. I'd felt abandoned and I'd felt harmed by her and I'd felt like I never really knew her, right? There was, a, there was an abandonment there. And one mm. of my first internal thoughts after baptism was, I wanna go home and hug my mom. Mm. And that thought felt like an alien had crawled up inside of me and taken over sure. my brain and body. And like, that wasn't me. 
It just felt mm. like that's not me. Like I, I didn't like my mom. I was angry at her. Right. And so mm. the idea of like, Oh, I want to go home and hug my mom. It was like, like a whole nother spirit had just, you know, taken my, over my body. Yeah. And then this guy, I'll never forget. Like I'm, I'm toweling off, right. I'm wrapping myself in a towel and this big Filipino man kind of beelines it for me. And I feel like, like, why is this guy coming up to me so fast? Right. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, I'm still kind of in shock. I'm like, nothing. I'm not doing anything tomorrow. He's like, I'm going to pick you up. And I was like, okay. You know, like I just kind of agree. I agreed to this. No questions asked. Right. I was just like, okay, well, that guy ended up being like a father figure to me. Uh, his name is, his name is Terry. His name is Terrence. And my second son, who I mentioned earlier is named after him because, um, Terry, Terry became for me, um, a spiritual father figure. You know, I still call him Mm. uncle Terry to this day because he's just like the guy that filled that gap. He was, he was, he's a big truth teller. He's very blunt and frank. And at that time in my life, I needed uh, an older man to speak truth into my life where sometimes it was uncomfortable and I didn't necessarily want to hear it, but, Mm. um, but I needed to hear it. And he would tell me the truth, even if I didn't like it. And sometimes we had conflict because of it. Sometimes I, later on, when I discerned a call to ministry, you know, I, he, he, he made me his, um, his intern, pastoral intern. And mm. I quit a few times. <laughs> I quit a few times. Cause I was angry at him. I, yeah, he would, sure. he would say something to me that I didn't like to hear. Mm. And I would say, all right, I'm done. I quit. And he would say, all right. You know, and he'd wait patiently for me to come back and say, I'm sorry. I, I want my <laughs> job back. <laughs> so that's, sure. uh, I mean, so, so that's the beginning of my relationship with Christ in a very intentional way. Obviously Christ was part of my life from a very young age because of my mom and her, and her relationship with Christ. But um, that at 16, almost 17, that was the, the rebirth that really began a, a, a trajectory to where I am mm. now. So, so thank you. Sort of a long I mean, answer. <laughs> no, no, we, we love long answers here because uh, it's, it's really, it's a great privilege to be able to delve into people's stories with them. Mm. Um, and there's such a vast richness. It's like just exploring a wonderful tapestry if, as you start to look into people's experience. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why we've stuck with this uh, initial question through so many guests in conversation here around earliest ex- experiences of God, because it just brings out uh, just this richness. Um, I'd love to ask a couple of questions if I could. I'm going to limit it to a couple because I have many, but um, (laughs) (laughs) if I may. Yeah, fire away. You mentioned something something earlier, and I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing that you used, but it was something along the lines of familiarity with the Holy Spirit. This is pre-10, as you tell your story, before um, sort of connection into, into the gang life that you speak of. What did you mean by that phrase? Um, because, I, because I hear you in terms of almost a, a mediated sense of God with your mom. Um, and there's that experience that you talk about with her, uh, where she talks, you know, she tells you the story of a visitation of Jesus around you. Um, but what did you mean with, with the familiarity? Something. Yeah, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that, that familiarity? I'd love to, to get a sense of that. So I think it started with, 
my mom's relationship with God, you know, she would uh, pray extemporaneously. Um, she would pray, she would speak in tongues. Uh, mm. she, she had a very charismatic faith that mm. was um, contagious. You know, it, it felt very, very real. It felt like a very real part of her everyday life. She talked to God like a friend. And sure. she also introduced me to Bible stories. You know, I remember having a kind of a children's Bible at a young age. I remember the, the, the pictures more than the stories. I remember the mm. paintings of Noah's Ark and, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea, those kind of pictures are kind of ingrained in my brain, <laughs> you know, yeah. from a young age. And um, I also feel like I, I cultivated my own sort of prayer life as a, as a child. I, I don't think it was very sophisticated. I think it was just bless me, you know, keep me safe, bless mom, bless grandpa kind of thing. But, mm. um, but yeah, I think I did have a very, very childlike faith up until, you know, some of the trauma of her mental illness began to affect me. And then mm. I think I retreated into drugs and I think I retreated into, um, you know, peers like friends. Mm. And I just think that, that that sort of tenderness towards God began to be hardened or, or, or sort of a, a thick skin developed where I wasn't as sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that, that moment, I mean, that's, it's quite striking how you tell the story, that moment as you come up out of the water and that feeling that you experience. What, um, was, was this an evening or a morning or a evening service? Okay. So yeah, was it, wasn't a, it wasn't a Sunday morning, which is, okay. which is odd. Like they had baptisms on a weeknight. It must've been, I want to okay. say it was a Wednesday night. Uh, it was a weekday. Yeah. Sure. But I thought God was only supposed to work on Sundays. That's kind of exactly <laughs> coming right? out for a midweek uh, pick up some extra hours. But it's, what, it's, 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 it's the Methodist in God that catches up to do the midweek. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what What was the rest of that evening like? Um, I mean, I know you talked about this guy Terence who comes to fetch you the next day, mm -hmm. but. Was the rest of that evening alone? Uh, did you go home with Nathan? What 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 was that? What was that like? What was the sort of post-experience moments like as you uh, finish up with that in the service and stuff? I think I my my remember. Uh, sorry, I'm stuttering so much. My no memory worries. of that evening mm. is that Nathan was as shocked as I was. Mm. Nathan was sort of like that came out of nowhere, man. What happened? <laughs> Mm. And I had to tell I had to tell him the whole story. I had to tell him about the shooting and I had to tell him about the car accident. And I had to say, man, I've had my own, you know, journey to this place. Like he had had his own journey uh, mm. out of out of drugs and reading the Bible more. You know, my journey was much more kind of like fear based. Like I, mm. I felt like I was kind of headed for death and death was knocking at my door. And he understood that part. I mean, he he kind of been around the same people I'd been around. And so he was like, yeah, man, you're living a dangerous lifestyle. Like, and, mm. and he was grateful. I mean, he, he had had his own experience and he, I guess he was just very grateful to have a friend join him in that journey. Mm. And we grew, we grew very close um, after that as well. We kept in touch for years and years um, afterward. Mm. And was there any kind of unpacking of this experience of this pastor, you know, these awkward moments that you talk about that lead up to that? Because I, I find sometimes when, when, you know, when we talk with people about some of their early experiences, 
there's kind of an immediate unpacking either on their own or with somebody else, you know, the, that day or the next day or over a week. And then later over time as well, there's a looking back and there's sometimes a similar or a deeper unpacking or something different. Was there any kind of conversation around like what happened and how did this guy know about me? And yeah. What was going on there? Yeah. Um, actually, my home church was actually pretty good about educating me around the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, I've, I've later, you know, gone on my own journey intellectually, theologically, to mm-hmm. think through some of, the, some of the things that I learned initially. But I remember long conversations about um, the gift of prophecy, long conversations about words of knowledge, words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had my own experiences with, with those things as well. Um, Terry, the pastor who beelined it for me, he yeah. was the college pastor. He was the, the uh, campus pastor. This was, okay. this was in Urbana, Illinois, which is the campus town of the University of Illinois at okay. Champaign-Urbana. And so he did a lot of ministry among college students. And I had many vivid experiences of gifts of the Holy Spirit in the large group gathering with other college students, mm. particularly around prophecy. I, I'll give you an example. Mm. I had this experience more than twice, more than three times, where in musical worship, I would have a sensation of uh, a heaviness on my chest, almost mm. like almost like the feeling of like something sitting on my chest. I, I, I usually describe it as like a brick, a brick mm. sort of sitting on my chest. And, and that sensation would be accompanied by words. It'd be like, like there would just be words in my head. And I would sense from God, I would sense these words need to be spoken. They need, they need to be spoken out. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would obey that feeling. And sometimes I would not obey that feeling. Sometimes I would let self-consciousness or fear, some other, some other reason why I can't do it, why I can't say these things. Maybe it's mm. the words themselves. I don't feel like I'm, I should say those things. I don't feel like I'm the right person or I don't feel like this is the right time. And several times, I kid you not, more than twice, maybe more than three times, those same words would come from someone else. Mm. And I would look at that person like, how did you know? <laughs> if I didn't say those words, somebody else would say those words. And sometimes mm. it was verbatim. Sometimes it was words that sat on my chest that I said, oh, I can't say those words. And then somebody would say those words. Mm. And I would go, okay. And the lesson I took from that was, God will have a spokesperson. If you you don't choose to be God's spokesperson, that's fine. God will have a spokesperson. (laughs) Mm. God's God's not thwarted by my disobedience. Uh, God will find another person. Yeah, yeah, the gift of those (laughs) words is for the person uh, who receives it and um, necessarily go away. <laughs> the gift of the words is for the person that receives it really. And, uh, and God is wanting to speak to them. And so, yeah, I, I guess it's a matter of if, if you're not going with it, God's still going with it in that sense. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I also had a few experiences where someone would come up to me. This was a Pentecostal kind of um, cultural thing that we would have, uh, what we call altar ministry. Are you familiar with altar ministry? This yeah. is sort of like subsequent to the service. Mm. You would just sort of stand at the front of the the gathering space, and people would mm. come to you for prayer. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yes, yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I don't take for granted that everyone understands Pentecostal charismatic culture because yeah. they don't. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> but this was a common That's occurrence. Good to explain. Yeah. Yeah, this was a common occurrence in my college uh, college ministry, and I would be one of the leaders receiving people for prayer. And I, I had several mm. experiences where someone would come up for prayer, and I didn't know this person, but I would I would say, hey, I have a sense from God. I believe that God wants to say this to you. And I would do it very humbly. I wouldn't say like, you know, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Because I wasn't sure. Give me $10,000. You know? <laughs> yeah, no. And it, it, yeah, and it's, it's, it's always something that I think mm. is to build up the person, never to tear down. I, mm. I, I don't feel like I'm called to give someone a word that is, that is uh, judgmental. Mm. Uh, but but maybe, maybe a warning, maybe a, hey, I feel like something's going on that maybe you should pay attention to, that maybe there's something mm. dangerous going on, right? But I, mm. I had several experiences of that where I don't know this person from Adam, but I feel like I, I need to tell you this thing and you take it, take it, take it for what it's worth, right? You, you check in with the Holy Spirit yourself and confirm that what I'm saying is true. Yeah, and, mm. and by judgmental, I, I assume, uh, I take it to mean it's, it's a question of your attitude and your approach in terms of how you handle it. Uh, rather than a matter of uh, staying clear from difficult, um, right? You know, I, I don't know what one would call it: revelations, words, communications. I like communications; right. it's much more natural than yeah, relational. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah, I would try not to you know label anyone. You are a this. I mean, that doesn't seem very kind or loving, right? You are you are a this. <laughs> mm, mm. But mm. if I have a sense that this person may be wrestling with something that's causing them pain or discomfort, you know, I might say, you know, are you doing this? Are you, you know, or, like, that's the sense that I have. And um, some mm. people would say, yeah, how did you know that? And I, 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 I can't say that I know that. I'd say that I have this sense. Mm. Mm. Sure. sure. Yeah. So the gifts of the spirit were, I think, operational in my teens and, I think to an extent they still are. I, I don't place as much emphasis on them in the worship gathering as I did as a teen. Like mm. I don't facilitate at our church times of altar ministry. I don't facilitate times of public prophecy. Like, does anybody have a word from God to share with the whole group? Um, I don't do that as much anymore, but mm. I'm still open to it. If somebody came to me and said, hey, I really feel like God has given me this word, I would say, go for it. I'd, I'd love to stick a pin in that and come back to that. <laughs> That's a can of worms, mind. isn't it? Well, I'm, I'm just, for, for you know, some. I'm fascinated <laughs> in, uh, in, in how you arrive there and the changes. Obviously, there's, mm. there's, there's more to the story mm. as, as we go forward, and I'm, I'm interested sure. to get there. But I'd love to come back to one more thing, if I may, and then obviously, Tim, over to you if you've got any questions to add. Mm. Um, if I may, just because I sense that it might be possibly one of the more sensitive spaces within your story, I would love to know what, what happened with that sense of going home and giving your mother a hug. Yeah. Did that play out within the story post this baptism evening? Um, if you're willing to go there, I'd be willing, happy, yeah. love to listen to whatever you have to share. Yeah, absolutely. I'm willing to go there. Um, I think after that day, 
I really did make a turn in my relationship with my mother. It really became much more tender. And um, hmm. not to say that I didn't immediately lose all of those feelings of resentment and abandonment. Hmm. Obviously, that was a process. But, um, but a big shift took place that night. And after sure. that, I, I viewed my mom with a lot more compassion. And hmm. I took on more of a caretaker role in in her life and i was much more um i felt closer to her because i knew that now my experience of god much more aligned with her experience of god if that makes sense sure. right we were we were yeah. sort of like now on the same team <laughs> yeah sure yeah and um yeah i remember actually this is kind of a interesting plot point mm. um i didn't mm. understand mental illness as a mm. 16 almost 17 year old as mm. probably most 16, 17 year olds in the mid nineties didn't understand mental illness. <laughs> yeah. And so one of my first thoughts, um, probably due to kind of Pentecostal culture, uh, I remember reading a book called This Present Darkness. Does that book ring a bell? Absolutely. By, oh, that um, familiar. Yeah. By, uh, Rebecca, who's that author? No, uh, was it Rebecca? No, it was a guy. Wasn't it a guy? No, no, it was, it was Rebecca, something like that. Um, Frank Peretti. No, no, Frank Peretti, This Present Darkness. Thanks, babe. Yeah. Frank Peretti, This Present <laughs> Darkness. Yeah. yeah. This Present Darkness depicts every sure. illness and every sin mm. as basically a individual demon. Yeah. <laughs> like, like demons, mm. demons of lust, demons of greed, demons of, right. And like, and that became almost adopted as Pentecostal theology in many mm. Pentecostal churches. They would just say, "Oh yeah, that sounds biblical." Yeah. Sure. In, in, in some ways, it, it, the the books themselves arise from the culture and then go back and reinforce and help. Exactly benefit. right. Mm, yeah. Yes. Mm. And so, very early on, I thought maybe my mom was demon possessed. Maybe that this wasn't schizophrenia. Maybe this was just a demon of confusion or something like that. Right. Sure. And so, I, 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 this is kind of a, a vulnerable confession. But at one point, I did pray for her to be uh, to be delivered from from demon possession or at least oppression. In my in my Pentecostal church, we differentiated between possession and oppression. Mm. <laughs> this was a very like you know how many how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. It was like yes. well, Christians Christians <laughs> the can't the be possessed. Christians versus non Christians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christians yeah. can't be possessed by demons, but they can certainly be oppressed by demons. Yeah. And it's and like, of well, course, I mean, you've got to give them the legal right to do that. All those <laughs> glorious things. Yeah. I'm sure that. Yeah, there was all kinds balance. of people that had like legal <laughs> legal theories, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I remember thinking that she was at least oppressed by demons, and prayed for her on on at least one occasion to be delivered. And I think she was open to it. She was like, mm -hmm. "Yeah, sure, pray for me." You know, like she was charismatic enough to think couldn't do any harm. You know, at least could do some good, but, <laughs> but, you know, later on, I, I, I learned more about mental illness and I learned that it's, it's not a lack of faith uh, to have a mental illness. It's not uh, demon possession necessarily to have uh, a mental illness. I mean, I think, I think mental illness is real. <laughs> it's a real, a real um, mm. illness, mm. Yeah. Mm. but that, you know, but that, but those early days, of being a Pentecostal, it wasn't clear to me that that at that time. Sure. But you were asking about like my relationship with my mom. I think that. Yeah. I think that it, yeah it, you know it, it got a lot a lot better because of that because of my 
for lack of a better term, conversion. And, and what was her immediate response to, to that night? I mean, did you tell her the story? Was it just kind of a very factual, uh, this happened and now I'm a Christian? Did you kind of involve her in the story of the evening? How, how did that told, connection go? I told her what happened and her response was, was joy, but also a little bit of confusion because mm. in her mind, you didn't need to do all that. Like you were already saved. Like in her <laughs> mind, like I raised you a Christian, you're already a Christian, you know? And sure. I guess the depth of my prodigal lifestyle wasn't apparent to her, you know? Obviously I didn't let her in on all the things I was involved in for obvious reasons. Mm, mm. A lot of it was criminal activity that you just don't tell your mom you're involved in. Um, but also, I mean, why not? Um, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I didn't want to all the criminal activity I was involved in to my mother. So, yeah. But um, so, you know, yeah, so I think her response was both joy, but also, why'd you need to go through all that? Mm. Kind of, mm. oh, that seemed unnecessary. <laughs> so, mm. but also, you know, she was glad that I was taking my faith more seriously, I guess, from her perspective. Mm. And any comment from her in terms of how it went down? Um, was that kind of matter of course for her? That the Absolutely matter of course. She, she believed in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit very adamantly. She believed mm. in words of knowledge, words of wisdom. I mean, that, none of that would have shocked her at all. She would have said, mm. yeah, that makes sense. Sure. <laughs> So that's, that's part of the alignment then that I hear you talking about, kind of the two of you being on the same side again. Is that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. And although this is up to 17. This is, uh, what a fascinating start. Yeah. Um, I, I will say this, that there was a little bit of a divide, kind of a minor divide um, mm -hmm. between charismatics and Pentecostals. Uh, I remember some of the kind of disparaging remarks between the two groups, sort of like... Um, uh, Pentecostals are uh, kind of the, the OGs, <laughs> the, the originators, and, and Charismatics are sort of wannabes, right? They're like not quite fully Pentecostal, but trying to be Pentecostal, right? <laughs> sort of like, they'll, they'll catch up, they'll catch up. And just to be clear, it's not usually Charismatics that say that, it's the Pentecostals. <laughs> right, right. There was a bit of, yeah, a bit of spiritual pride in being sort of the heirs of the Azusa Street Revival, right? We are the hmm. We are the original spirit-filled Christians. These charismatics came along in the 60s and 70s, and, you know, they're all right, I guess. But <laughs> one of the big dividing lines was uh, around the, the, the insistence on the initial physical evidence of speaking mm. in tongues upon yeah. spirit baptism. That's a big dividing mm. line. So if you're mm. a Pentecostal, you believe that you, you will speak in tongues if you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a, that is a must. It's not mm. an option. Charismatics, on the other hand, think that when the spirit fills a person, it, the spirit could give that person any number of gifts. Who knows? Who knows what gifts could, could result? And mm. that's sort of a dividing line between charismatics and Pentecostals. Mm. And, and of course, the, the irony is, um, you know, we've, we've got a long history, uh, you know, as a, as a faith tradition, and there's several of these great awakenings in history. Um, yeah. post-reformation and pre-reformation in fact many yeah. of those uh 
similar kinds of events were through the, the monastics contributed in the historical culture. And so there's a there's a long history there anyway, which which kind of like deflates both in relation to each other because it becomes more right. of a sibling squ squabble later on forgetting the heritage yes. that came before. And, and, and Are you familiar with... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and possibly what heritage may come after. I'm, I'm just giving a scope. Maybe in 300 years, they're still listening to these podcasts. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Are you familiar with Amos Young's work? Um, offhand, I feel like I should know it, but off the top of my head, I can't remember anything. So I think, I think for me, Amos Young was the first to introduce this uh, umbrella term, renewalist. Yeah. And... Yeah. And he has a one-volume systematic theology mm. called Renewal Theology. Yeah. And I think he would agree with you that there's a long tradition, as long as the church tradition, mm. kind of coinciding with the tr church tradition, yeah. of people with ecstatic experiences of the Holy Spirit, going back mm. to maybe even the Montanists, right? <laughs> the Montanists yeah. were a second century movement of people with ecstatic Holy Spirit inspired experiences and some some thought they were heretical and some i think tertullian joined them or something like that and, and of course the uh, uh good old uh jews and the jews that follow jesus and amongst them the the the, the historical group that may or may not have existed clearly i don't think it was clearly the gnostics and that right. kind of set up some tension uh, about experience and immediate experience of god that persists still today yeah. right yeah, yeah. So, so you have uh, fundamentalists like John MacArthur mm. who hold a, cesa a cessationist view, yeah. which believe that any sort of charismatic Pentecostal experience is automatically mm. illegitimate and should be should be um, should be considered dangerous or something mm. heretical. Mm. Which is a very convenient position, I think, in some ways. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, we won't take shots at John without him being here to back himself. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, at this point, why not? Least. <laughs> yeah, not not from here on, perhaps. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and so TC, then what happens uh, over the over the course of the next what do we call it season of your life? Next five years, ten years? I mean, I can't put numbers to it because you'd have to tell us that story. Um, but can you can you take that narrative a little further, either to what brings you to where you are today, mm. or you know, stopping at any other uh, interesting points along the way? Are there moments of renewal for yourself? There's obviously some some changes, I'm assuming. Yeah. And, and one big one landing where you are right now. But um, <clears throat> yeah, tell I us can the do you one better. Story. Oh, fantastic. I can I can do even better than that. I can even tie it into open and relational theology. Oh wow! Well, <laughs> smart, that is why smart, we're here. Smart move, Yara. I'll just put a segue in uh, that uh, <laughs> that we will be including your YouTube um, summary, Tulip versus Robes. Um, mm, you know, great. just by way of people to 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 follow up. And obviously, there's a theological divide there. So, so I guess it's a, it's a segue to go, uh, you know, I think Steve's is touching on the backstory of b between those years you've landed here, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I have a bit of an origin story for my journey with, within open and relational theology, and it happens right around the time where I became, uh, became a disciple of Jesus at 17, mm -hmm. just before 17. Um, the origin story goes like this. 
Mm. Um, when I was 17, I needed a job. Um, I had been selling drugs up until that point and had a few front jobs like uh, Taco Bell and fast food jobs, but I needed a mm. real job. So and you, an you, elder, you, you had a job. Entrepreneurs don't have real jobs. You needed, go, no. <laughs> yeah. I needed a, I needed a, a legit job. And an elder in my home church um, was the manager of a pre-press publisher, which did a lot of mm. page layout and typesetting and proofreading and editing of textbooks. And mm. I was in school for desktop publishing and graphic design. That's what I was taking classes. Um, in college for. So he gave me my first desk job, my first real job, you know, mm. and it was in the Quark Express page layout department of a pre-press company. Sure. And good old Quark. <laughs> yeah, it was pre-InDesign, pre-InDesign. Yeah. Good old Quark Express. Mm. And an elder, so there was two elders, the elder that gave me the job, then there was an elder from my home church, who was also an editor at that pre-press company. And the editor elder, he had been a missionary for many years in Europe. And he spoke several different languages. I think he spoke mm. French and German. I, I don't know what else, but very smart man. And he was the guy who met up early before work to lead a little prayer group, little Bible study group with the Christians that worked in this, in this particular company. And so mm. uh, he became a quick mentor, a fast mentor of mine. Mm. I, I looked up to him. I admired him. Uh, you know, I, I, I loved hearing his stories of, of missionary work. Mm. And sometimes we would spend lunch together, you know, in the break room. I was a new Christian. He was an experienced missionary. I wanted to glean so much from him. So, mm. so he would often open the Bible and just read passages to me. And I would say, wow, I never, I never read that before, you know. Uh, he would tell me about some story, that, uh, some missionary work that he'd done. Well, one particular day I came into work pretty um, depressed. And the reason why I was depressed is because I had spent some time that weekend, this must have been a Monday, with some old friends from kind of like my pre, pre-conversion days. <laughs> mm. And um, I was frustrated that, you know, my testimony, my witness to them just didn't do it. Mm. They didn't, they didn't, you know, throw their hands up and say, give me Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so I was frustrated. I was frustrated with my failed evangelism attempts and feeling, feeling like, you know, my friends, people I cared about were going to, were going to go to hell. You know, that, that's how I felt at the time. And I'll never forget this mentor sat me down in the break room and he said, TC, your, your friends, um, they aren't chosen. You, you are elect, but they are reprobates. And I had never heard this language of election, reprobation before. This was new language to me. And I, I said, you know, I kind of said, what, what the heck are you talking about? And he opened up the Bible to Romans chapter nine. Yeah. Was it eight? Romans, the famous chapter that says, who are you, O man, to speak back to God, right? Mm. You know, I, I will prepare vessels for wrath and vessels for honor. He read that passage to me and he said, this is about your friends. Like this is this is what's going on. Your friends are vessels of wrath. You are a vessel of honor and they are reprobates and you are elect. Yeah. And as I'm piecing together what he's saying, I'm going, wait a second. It sounds like what you're saying is that before all of eternity, creation, God mm -hmm. has already chosen my friends 
to burn in hell before they were ever born or made any choices and had sinned at all. And he was basically like, that's what yeah, I'm saying. Absolutely. You got the message. He was like, bingo, you got yeah. it. Yeah. 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 He was like, that's Would it. You now, like you're, some now, more you're, now you're catching on. <laughs> and I said, that is evil. That is monstrous. Like my, my reaction was like, if that's true, I don't want to serve this God. Like I, I will renounce my faith and walk away from this God because this God is evil. Mm. And I, I think I also said something to the effect of that's not the God who I met. At, at our church, the church that we both go to, that's not the God that I met. Hmm. Not a God that would condemn someone to hell before they were ever born. And he, he, his, his reaction to me was like, well, you'll have to wrestle with this, but eventually you'll, you'll see that I'm right. Hmm. And that, that sparked a fire in me that I was not much of a reader before I came to faith, but reading the Bible as a new Christian opened me up to reading a lot of other books. And some of the first mm. books that I remember reading as a teenager were C.S. Lewis books. I read Mere Christianity. I devoured Mere Christianity. I devoured The Problem of Pain, you know, mm. uh, all, all of his books that I could get my hands on. I, I read a ton of C.S. Lewis. And The Problem of Pain was one of those books that kind of dealt with the with, with this predestination election kind of uh, issue, especially around mm. the problem of evil, right? Mm. And I remember kind of Lewis's response was, well, God gives us free will. That's, I mean, that's in, that's in near Christianity as well. Mm. So the role of free will in this question of predestination and election and all that stuff was, was a big question burning inside me. And, and um, I, I shared that with several people, especially Terry. I said, I shared that with Terry. What do I do? You know, what, what do I do with this question? His response was the classical Arminian position. It was, well, it's a paradox. It's a paradox, DC. TC, like God knows what's going to happen. And because God foreknows what's going to happen, then God can choose who's elect and who's not elect. It's based on your choice, right? Mm -hmm. I was not satisfied with that answer. To me, that, that felt like a logical contradiction. It felt like if God already knows what I'm going to choose, then I don't have free will because <laughs> my choice is foreknown as a definitive thing already. I can't choose other than what God already knows I'm going to choose. And also in fairness, the, the language of, of God elects you to be a prebate or God elects you to salvation is the choice that God is making. It's not about your choice as an individual. Right. And so what we fundamentally have is a clash between God's choices, which basically goes, you don't get the choice, and the notion of free will, which says you do right. get the choice. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Calvinists will push back hard against Arminians who say, well, God's choice is based on our choice. They'll say, no, 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 no. God gets to choose. God mm -hmm. is the one who elects. Mm -hmm. Right. They don't like that language of, well, God takes a second role to your choice. Because <laughs> uh, in their mind, for, for the human being to have agency in that is right. to take away from the sovereignty and the power and the full knowledge mm -hmm. of God. It, it makes God smaller in their books as opposed to bigger. Exactly. Mm. So this led to a season of just mm. frantic reading. I, I read everything I could get my hands on mm. about predestination, election, foreknowledge, um, determinism, free will, philosophy, theology, mm. everything. And something stuck with me. Here's the one that got me. It was an essay written by Clark Pennock in a book called Free Will and the Sovereignty of God, I think. It's a collection of essays, but, mm. but Clark Pinnock's essay was called a, um, From Augustine 
to Arminius, a pilgrimage in theology. And in that essay, he, he recounts his story of being a five-point Calvinist teaching theology at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and teaching on the book of Hebrews. And he felt like teaching through the book of Hebrews undermined his doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's the P in TULIP. Yep. That, that Hebrews talks about you must endure. You must endure. You must keep the faith or else you will be, you will fall away. And how does he reconcile that with his theology, which says you can't fall away? I, I mean, I mean, in fairness, um, the Bible is highly questionable to people with clear theology. So it's very important to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to yeah. read some texts over other texts, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So this was one of those texts that challenged his theology, right? He, yeah. he couldn't square the perseverance of the saints with the, with the admonition of the writer of Hebrews. Yeah. And so he describes it as a thread that was pulled and the whole thing began to unwind, right? Mm. All, mm. Like he said, when I, when I rethought the P, I had to rethink the I and the U mm. and the L and the T. And the <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so just to interject here quickly, because I, I assume that the, the, the listeners will go and watch the video after rather than before. Um, Calvinists have, well, when we think back to Calvinist theology, we summarize it with an acronym. And then when we start thinking about uh, open and relational theology, um, as I understand it, you've put forward an acronym as opposed to you just summarizing. <laughs> or, you know. Yeah, I'm not quite on the same level as the, the Synod of Dort, but sure. <laughs> well, history has moved on a, a little diffused institutionally. Um, but, uh, but fundamentally... And numerically, you can't be at the same level of the Synod of Dort anyway, because... Very <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> well, perhaps on the level of the papacy, you know. It's, uh... <laughs> um, anyway, I interject, Tim, carry on. Anyway, so, so functionally, good old uh, Calvinist theology, which is a, which is a stream, and it, it really fits in with a lot of reformed, and with the way ideas cross-pollinate, although it's very Calvinist, you'll find it... Uh, Many conservative Christians and many traditional Christians or mainstream Christians have a um, almost a stream or a foundation of Calvinist thinking and Calvinist theology. And the acronym is really, it comes down to a word called TULIP. And if you remember TULIP, you can always think back to all the, all the key points in it. Right. And uh, we'll get to open and relational theology in time, but uh, like... Um, uh, because I'm not going to get it right off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, tulip, just 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 in a nutshell, the the the, the letters. T is for total depravity. Mm -hmm. U is for unconditional election. Mm -hmm. L is for limited atonement. I is for irresistible grace, and P is for perseverance of the saints. Cool. Mm -hmm. And that's a summary based on the conclusions of the Synod of Dort, um, which was a debate between the Remonstrants and the Reformed intelligentsia of the day and historically um date fires where are we pinning pinning that i want to say 16th century 15th 1500s okay okay but so it I might mean, have been it, this yeah. is in living memory i mean it, it happened just late yesterday 1500s. It's, it's new ideas <laughs> late late 1600s yeah late 1500s I'm sorry. 1500s yeah yeah that's what i thought I 16th century yeah yeah Surely. i can uh, let me just um remonst if you look up remonstrance it was the remonstrance where the were the critics of uh of reformed theology in in your neck of the woods, Steve. I was just going to say I'm I'm in Calvin Town, so uh, yeah, your neck of the woods. <laughs> yeah, it's still alive and kicking, hey. 
So, so this uh, thirteenth uh, November, sixteen eighteen, and the final 16, meeting 18. was twenty uh, ninth of May, sixteen nineteen. So it's really seventeen. Yeah, yeah, really seventeen. So I mean, so so Penick was my gateway drug into mm. um, open and relational theology. Penick struck me as an as a post conservative evangelical who was on a pilgrimage to understand God as love. Um, he wrote a, he wrote a mm. book later called uh, Flame of Love, which is his mm. his pneumatology. But uh, Pennock was really an inspiration to me because he had he had he had prioritized this motif of journey of pilgrimage. I want to understand God. I want to be on this journey, not stuck in mm. rigid um, systematic theological categories, but I want to understand God personally, relationally. And I want to understand how God moves in and through and with the world, with and with creation, right? Mm. And that really resonated with my experience as a Pentecostal charismatic new convert, right? Um, mm. I, I had experienced God as someone who I'm walking with in real time, experiencing in real time, communing with in real time, right? And so mm. I needed a theology that matched my experience. And I didn't feel like the theology of my mentor who said, oh, from all eternity, God has already decided, uh, you know, your friends are going to hell. You are elect, yada, yada, yada. Right. I just said that doesn't that doesn't compute with my experience. Yeah. Mm. And, and Pinnock later wrote that there's with open and relational theology, there's something he calls the existential fit that open theism makes sense of our lived experience that we, we live life as if the future is partly open. We live life as if our choices matter. We live life as if there's consequences to door A, door B, door C, right? Hmm. That it's going to make a difference in our lives and in the lives of others. So th that's what open theism teaches. So what, there's an existential fit between the theology and our experience. Yeah, I, I think hmm. interestingly enough, we've got a, a strong divide between the modern world, um, which was starting to... Uh, develop and really comes to maturity later, but it's it's a couple of hundred years to get there. And the Synod of Duet and others take place within that context. It's a highly mechanized worldview and it's non-relational. So it very much makes sense that they're going to go, this is the machinery of the way things work. And we've got this clear revelation. Now, mm -hmm. now arriving at that clarity is is itself a, a process, you know, as they're working out their theology and it takes time. Then we've got this transition, which really is a 20th century transition. Uh, we see it, uh, you know, um, we start moving towards relationships matter an experiential reality individuals. In the modern world, our institutions and our structures define everything to us from our language, our politics, our family, all that kind of thing. Mm. But we arrive in the, in the modern secular world and it's over to you as an individual. We no longer have their, you know, it, it's we, we, are in control of our destiny. The institutions aren't. We need to take responsibility and agency. And so in some ways, this is a, a you know, open theism. It's a step towards open and a relational theism. It starts becoming an opportunity for a theology to emerge that's more in keeping with uh, our relationships of primary. And our theology right. is primarily becomes relational. But where it becomes uh, challenging between the two i guess is that the one is older and more established speaks with a strong sense of certainty 
and has a long mm. time to build and and seed the ideas and all that kind of stuff. Curiously right. enough, many of those movements are cessationist in the sense <laughs> that the people that really hold to them are not people that are, right. are, are speaking the language that you're speaking about. Well, you know, as I go about my day, I'll, I'll meet someone or I'm, you know, preaching or I'm doing whatever. And I, I have a sense that God is speaking to someone. If I don't say anything, God is still going to say the same thing to them and someone right. else might step forward. So that kind of stuff, like there's a, there's a strong difference between the two. And then curiously, not only is open theism treated as a heresy, this kind of experientialism is treated as, right. a, as, as a heresy. So, so, so as Steve was saying earlier, I'm known to do this ra rambling and then go, there's a question in there somewhere. I <laughs> <laughs> well, can I, can I add to that? Yeah, the, yeah. I, 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 I love, I love the historical um, background that you're giving. Another aspect of that historical background is the transition from Newtonian science to mm. quantum, mm. quantum understanding. So someone like John Polkinghorne, who was a um, expert in his field of quantum physics, when he went back to school to become an Anglican priest and became an expert in theology, he had two PhDs. He actually had three. He had a PhD in mathematics, physics, and theology. And he saw the quantum world as revealing an open and relational God. He saw a, a synergy between the way that quantum physics was opening up the world and he, he called it a world of true becoming a world with with indeterminacy built into the very fabric of the universe he saw that as revealing a god who is in open and relation an open relationship with creation and i think interestingly enough something that is um that is that is untapped so i'm i'm, I'm reaching for this kind of a fresh yet, it's not a, a prepared idea at all, is if you consider how Jung goes and he reviews a lot of mysticism and the processes and what people are into, he fundamentally distills things down to something that's quite relational and the individual's journey towards, you know, telling the difference between good and evil within their own life, within their own experience, and the growth that goes, goes into that and enables people in relation to themselves and they're within relation to others as well. You know, and so, so it's not something that just happens on, on um, you know, within a theological stream. It, there's something that's, that's at place in, in, in the world. And in, in many ways, something like open and relational theism doesn't look at this world as though um, salvation is God's plan B to rescue the world that God is about to set on fire and just delaying that mm. inevitable end because oh damn it like there's another one coming through the door like come on can we just get <laughs> you through already so we can close the door you know or when the ship is filled whereas open and relational theorism I believe is is it starts delving into more the language of intimacy that we start getting in in, in depth psychology that if we look at our relationships controlling and abusive relationships are not mm -hmm. healthy and in right. many ways this older God concept is an older, controlling, abusive. I love you. I I, I violently engage you. Very. I'm wrathful because I love you. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, yes. whereas now we're starting to get to this idea of of a God who is relationally vulnerable, does not control, yes. and in that yes. there's true strength. Who yes. reveals God's own mind and heart, and is actually looking for the depth of that kind of relationship, and right. seeking for people to engage at that level as well. So, uh, just 
you know, again, nothing clear over to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I can interject an actual question there, TC, Thank you, it would be... Save me, Steve. Save me. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry. <laughs> that is not a critique of your ramble. I no, 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 no. I don't take it as such. <laughs> and point it in a specific direction. Mm. Some of my reading of, of the people within open and relational, relational theism and in some other areas of, of kind of Christian faith mm. would be, I like you're talking about process, TC, when you talk about this kind of this evolution of process. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but mm. it would seem to me that many of the people have a history and a background mm. in different aspects of the Christian faith tradition. And at That's some right. point there's a break from that, mm. which is, it sounds almost as though we're, we're it's, it's too kind of, um, compartmentalized and linear but it's not there's process there's movement as people but there is a definitive break at some point for somebody like a, I mean I'm just I was refreshing my knowledge on the uh, open and relational theology um, on the website the center and I saw Dustin Kensrew's name again and it just reminded me of that that's a very definitive break you know when he moved away from certain theological background backgrounds towards open and relational theism, for example. And I'm interested in at what point in your process, was there a break? Was there a slow letting go? Is this an addition to where you've come from? Is there a very clear shift in, in direction for your life as, as you embrace open and relational theism for, for what you understand it be now and much of your work now? How, how does that how does that kind of motion of your life tend towards where you are now? Yeah, that's a good question. So I have a story for this one too. Um, awesome. After after that experience that I that I told you about earlier, um, I later discerned a calling to full time ministry. Um, hmm. That's a story in, a, in and of itself. But, I'm sure that's very loaded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, even, even the language, I have to be careful about the language. Um, I hear you. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but I, I embarked on this journey into training mm. for the ministry. Right. And how would I go about training for the ministry? And one of the op options that was presented to me was Bible college. Mm. And and I, and I took that option. Uh, it, there, it was a process. It was a discernment process. But I, re, I remember choosing to attend a Pentecostal Bible college because this particular Bible college combined in the field ministry training within the classroom, uh, you know, teaching. Yeah, teaching. Okay. And I, I valued that on the ground field mm -hmm. training. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted that, that synergism between doing the ministry and learning about the theology, right? And the, and the mm, history. Mm. So that's why I chose this particular Bible college. But at that Bible college, there was a prejudice against open and relational theism. I remember mm. many professors cautioning, even warning vigorously against uh, Moltmann and mm. uh, against um, process theism and against mm. even open theism. I presented on open theism in a class lecture, or, or it was a class presentation that students were giving to the rest mm. of the class. And the president of the school sat in on my lecture because he knew I was teaching on open theism. And he <laughs> wanted to, he wanted to lob 
questions at me that he thought was say, he wasn't there to applaud hey no he was there to critique <laughs> he, he was there and to it was because career opportunities elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> right yeah and he was very critical of the idea that god quote unquote doesn't know the future right that was mm. very uh for him very a very threatening idea mm. and i and i you know i reiterated multiple times open theism isn't teaching that god doesn't know the future uh, in that sort of redu redu reductionistic way, yeah. Um, but uh, he wasn't he wasn't satisfied with that sort of response, and so so there was a breaking between my classic Pentecostal tradition, which mm. was staunchly Arminian, mm. and my mm. open and relational theology. There was a breaking there, mm. and that led to an opening up of my myself to other traditions. It, mm. it actually mm. it actually opened me up to ecumenicalism. I remember. Yeah. I remember a professor in my Bible college saying the Baptists, the Baptists teach the doctrines of devils. And I said, the Baptists? Because basically we're Baptists plus speaking in tongues, right? <laughs> I was like, we're just Baptists who speak in tongues. And you're saying there's something wrong with the Baptists. And it was just like this very like closed off, very insular view of the Christian faith. And I, I began to be more open to other traditions. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I began attending a PCUSA church, which is, a, which is the liberal branch of the Presbyterian church in America. Yes. It's, the, it's, the more, it's the more liberal branch. And mm -hmm. it was beautiful. We loved it. We, we fell in love with the, 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 uh, the liturgical traditions that weren't part of our everyday Pentecostal practices. Mm -hmm. And we fell in love with the Nicene Creed set in, you know, set in worship and uh, just other mm -hmm. aspects of, of Presbyterianism, but they were staunchly reformed. So I remember mm -hmm. um, I was given the opportunity to lead a Bible study, or maybe it was a book, it was a book study, book group. And I chose mm -hmm. the book Letters from a Skeptic by Greg Boyd, mm -hmm. which is a classic apologetic te text. Most people think of it as a, a book to an atheist about the Christian faith, a very apologetic book. But mm. there's one chapter that deals with the problem of evil in which Boyd introduces the idea of open theism, right? And because mm. of that one chapter, my Presbyterian, uh, the Presbyterian elders of that church had an issue with me leading that, that book study. Oh, that, that contains open theism. So you, 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 know, you can't use that book. Mm. Or they at mm. least objected to that chapter. I can't remember exactly how that turned out, but but, but, but there was another breaking of a beautiful tradition that's welcomed me and I've, and I've learned from and I've grown in my appreciation of the global church and the historic mm. church has also a wall around what sort of things can be taught about God's foreknowledge mm. <laughs> or God's yeah. omniscience, right? And then that mm. led to another um, tradition. We, we spent some time in the, um, in the Baptist church. We spent some time mm. in the American Baptist church when we lived in Boston. Mm. And even that church had an issue with open things. I remember I had several conversations with the pastor about this. He, he had been trained at the same seminary I was attending. I was attending Gordon Conwell and he was a graduate of Gordon Conwell. So we mm. had many professors in common that, you know, he'd had that professor. I had that professor and we talked about open theism and he said, Oh yeah, that's heresy. You know, just completely <laughs> wrote it off. And I think it even showed up in one of his sermons once where he said, yeah, that open theism, you know, it's heresy. So there was even a, a, a barrier there. Now, here's where 
I found inclusion. I found inclusion in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, mm -hmm. When I was in seminary, I had a professor named Sung Chan Ra. Sung Chan Ra wrote a book called The Next Evangelicalism, Freeing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity. He's a Korean American mm -hmm. theologian. And um, he taught social ethics, Christian social ethics at Gordon Conwell back when I was a student there. And I remember mm -hmm. him saying that his tradition never bifurcated social justice from evangelism, that his tradition married the two and saw them as, as complementary. Yep. And I was like, raising my hand, like, which one is it? Which, <laughs> tell me, <laughs> tell me the name. And he said, it's, it's the Evangelical Covenant Church. I'd never heard of it before, but I came to find out that Brenda Salter McNeil, who was a, a, someone I admired from the intervarsity world, uh, Ephraim Smith, who, whose books I'd read on, he wrote a book called The Hip Hop Church, I read that book and loved it. Many of these people were evangelical covenant church pastors. So I, I inquired. And one of the things I inquired about that denomination was, could I be an open theist and be ordained in this denomination? And I found out that the superintendent of my conference was an open theist. I found out that the director of church planting for my conference was an open theist. I found out that they were not opposed to these ideas about God. So, so and that was one of the reasons why. So, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit here. Did they say yes, you could, or did they say no? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah. One, one of, um, cool. one of the covenants mm -hmm. claims to fame, one of their mm -hmm. kind of distinctives is that they are non-doctrinaire. Mm -hmm. They, they don't, um, they have a very small set of affirmations, mm -hmm. not a long kind of treatise on theology that you have to affirm. Mm -hmm. When I was Pentecostal, the assemblies of God, has what they call 16 fundamental truths. You have to affirm all 16 mm -hmm. of these fundamental truths. Mm -hmm. um, and they're very doctrinaire. They're very in the weeds of, you know, pre-trib, post-trib kind of, kind of uh, wrestling. The covenant has six affirmations that I think any Christian could affirm. They're things like mm -hmm. the centrality of the word of God. Well, I mean, I asked a professor once, does that mean word of God as in Bible or word, is, word of God as in Jesus? And the professor said, yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so if, you know, if you're a Christian, the centrality of the word of God as mm. Jesus himself or as the scriptures is probably part of your experience, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, the other ones are very similar. They're, they're very general. Freedom in Christ, um, the, the whole mission of the church, things like that. So I found myself able to fit within a tradition that was open-minded enough to allow diversity of thought on the, the providence of God, on Calvinism, Arminianism, open theism, mm. those so, kind of categories. So I just feel like I'm going to do a bit of a consolidation here. Um, so um, just give me a second. So <laughs> in many ways, we, we have this, this older view that is that is recent in history because we can't say everyone in the history that has believed in God or followed Jesus has thought in the same way. So post-Reformation, mm -hmm. after the 1500s, we've got people starting to think stuff and it takes them 100, 200 years to get to the place where they really put stuff on the table that they're certain about. And then it's got a, a couple of hundred years to, to distill. And some of what they're working with is really, if we drew a timeline, it's the, the language of going, before creation begins, God sees everything from the beginning. After creation ends, God sees everything from the end. 
And in between, God sees everything super temporally from above. So we can say, you know, in relation to time. And in some ways as well, what, they, what they're affirming and holding on to is God's distinctiveness. So God and, God and creation are not one. God is separate, blah, 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 blah. What's interesting there is that there's no room for God walking alongside or journeying with people in between. Right. There's a massive gap there. Historically, as relationships come to the forefront, historically, as we start moving towards individualism, individuality, and out of individuality, choice, and out of choice, responsibility, out of responsibility, the notion of intimacy, love, and the free ways in which we enter into each other, into love and life with each other, that creates chaos. Out of that deep chaos comes something meaningful with our lives. So within this context, you've got people starting to go, hang on, this framework just doesn't ring true for us anymore. It just doesn't hold sense as it's put forward. Also, when you throw into that the notion that God somehow from beforehand made choices that God then could justify afterwards, and as God looked on, God's going, ha, see, I told you so. You know, it, mm. it's, a diff it's a different perspective. So here we're starting to open that up and say, no, God actually participates. God relates. God engages. Our relationship with God is meaningful. God's relationship with us is meaningful. Both parties are invested, blah, 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 blah. I, you know, I'll leave that over to you to clarify. So this starts coming to focus. And we start basically going, well, the other doesn't matter as much as us because we live in the life in the present. So we, we, we're almost looking at things or people are starting to engage things, not from the perspective of we have to hold on to the historical fact and the tradition that's handed down to us. We're almost starting to go, We've accumulated a lot of baggage. It's really hard for us to sort through that. But what is consistent is the opportunity for relational engagement. So how do we put this front and center? And there, perhaps, we'll have a divide between people who only work theoretically with the idea of God's love and mm -hmm. or, or, or their relationship with, with the idea of God over the God that draws near in person. And that is perhaps a, a subject to dive into a, a, at another date. Um, so as, a, as an outsider to open and relational theology, how do you feel about that? Am I on track in uh, putting it into that kind of framework? And, and after that, if you put the, the acronym ROSE on the table, which thankfully is shorter than TULIP, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what are the key elements to, to that that make, an, uh, that make the acronym work? Acronym? Is acronym the right word? So I think so. The brain has gone dead. So, so yeah, yeah, over to you with that. And uh, Steve, I don't know if you want to jump in as well. But, uh, no, that's good, yeah. I'd love to have, have some spend some time in the roses. Yeah, <laughs> I love that too. <laughs> I, I think you are on to something. I think that there's, there's something to be said about open theism um, as, we, as we understand it today, mm. um, not the kind of dynamic omniscience view that was present in the 1800s and 1900s, mm. but in the... The modern uh, manifestation of open theism it arise it arises out of post-conservative evangelicalism. Mm. So evangelicals who are reconsidering mm. some of the things that they've taken for granted mm. uh, in the '60s and '70s. Now in the '80s and '90s, they're going, "Hmm, have we missed something?" And I think you're right. Relationality has come to the fore um, in the culture, in the in the in the philosophy, in the science. This is my cat, Broadway. I love <laughs> Excuse me, Broadway. I'm in an interview. See? Hello, beautiful cat. Um, and I think that these post-conservative evangelicals are not only navigating the theological transition, but also the cultural transition. Mm. 
right? They're also navigating the rise of the religious right, the rise of institutions um, that are purging themselves of female professors, like, uh, mm -hmm. like what happened at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. There, there came a, re, a conservative resurgence that kicked out all the female professors and said only only men can teach. Right. So they're they're navigating these sort of cultural shifts, and at the same time, that's happening. In you know, psychology is coming more to the fore, right? So you're having more mm. pastors speaking and preaching in in terms of psycho psychological terms, right? Yep. And I think Pinnock is I think Pinnock is a, is an example of that, right? When he thinks about God, he uses the social Trinitarian um, framework, right? He, he thinks of God mm. as, uh, as, as a community of persons, right? Which is very, mm. very ancient, Chalcedian and, and, um, and everything, but, but also I think arises out of another way of transitioning away from that rigid certainty model mm. of evangelicalism that preceded him, right? Which was very, God is like this, Humanity is like this. Well, God's a lot more like humanity than we than we previously thought. Um, which which mm. would kind of make sense if you start at the beginning and read the text about in the image of blackness. <laughs> but you know, it's just a yeah. shot in the dark. I don't know how important that is right. post fall, really, right? <laughs> right. Um, something that Richard Rice says in the openness of God. The openness of God. It was a big landmark in this transition. 1994, five post-conservative evangelicals partner mm. to write this book and it landed like a bomb on the academic landscape kind of like the way that people describe bart's um commentary of romans right this mm. this hit evangelicals right in the heart and um richard rice is one of those authors and he writes that open theism is jesus centered that open theism puts the revelation of god in christ central to our theology and says, not only is Jesus like God, but God is like Jesus, right? Mm. That's that's one of his central tenets. And I think that that really resonated with me as a mm. younger, charismatic Pentecostal believer, that I, I was close to Jesus. I felt like I walked with Jesus through the spirit, right? And mm. um, having a God that looks like Jesus reflected in my theological understanding of Providence was really attractive to me. And so, TC, take that a little further now for us, and, and let's spend some time around this ROSE acronym. Um, take us through some of those, and uh, would love it if you'd spend a little bit more time than, you know, we summed up TULIP quite quickly, just yeah. for the sake of the listeners, but this will be far less familiar potentially for a number of people listening. And so, just I would say take as much time as you need, but uh, yeah, <laughs> always nervous to tell pastors that you never know. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, no, go, go, go for it. I was just wondering. I, I'm, I, I don't know how much time you have. I'm, I've got, uh, I've got maybe um, like 10, 15 more minutes. Perfect. Does that sound okay? Okay. Yeah, take take, take all of it. <laughs> yeah. So the R in my acronym. Uh, each, each letter in my acronym serves two functions. So that's a little mm. bit different than TULIP. It's, I end up having like four. Tulip. Yeah. I lied earlier. Yeah, <laughs> I end up having eight instead of four. But um, the R in rows represents God's relationality and mm. humanity's responsibility. So this mm. kind of serves double duty. And 
The relationality part is key, as, as we've already talked about. God is in dynamic relationship with the world, and God is essentially relational in God's self, in the, in the triune God. Uh, I think that's always been central to the open theism that emerged in the 1990s. And, mm. and, and in fairness to the long heritage and exactly and Pentecost yes. and that as well. Yeah. Right. Yes. I think, I think it, it, it's definitely squares with historic mm. Christian theology. Mm. Um, and the responsibility piece is where I delineate between two ways of approaching free will. There is a compatibilist view of free will, which says, mm. yeah, you're free. You're free to choose what you desire most. But who determines those desires? God. God determines mm. our desires. So you're free insofar as you get to choose what God has already chosen for you. <laughs> so mm. for me, that doesn't work. Yeah, that doesn't feel like freedom to me. I, I, I personally and open theism affirms what's typically called libertarian free will, mm. which is the power of contrarian choice or the power mm. to choose other than what you in fact choose, right? Mm. So mm. I, I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but I could have eaten a grilled cheese sandwich. That's a possibility. Mm. And this is where Arminians, classical Arminians, can say amen, right? Classical Arminians, I think, on the whole, affirm God's relationality and affirm libertarian free will. So, so far, so good. It's the O where we diverge from classical Arminians. The O hmm. in Rose stands for the openness of the future and the omni-resourcefulness of God. And the way hmm. that I tie those together is that because the future is in part undetermined, indetermined, uh, that part of the future hangs on the free will choices of what free agents do. And, and the reason why I use free agents and not just people is because if you're charismatic and Pentecostal, you probably believe in spirit agents. So there's other non-human persons in the universe mm -hmm. um, or entities in the universe. So they also are contributing to a future, right? Uh, if you believe that sort of thing. Mm. And so free agents in the world contribute to a future outcome, which is which is partly open. And that's where Arminians say, nope, sorry, can't go there with you. And this also leads to, well, how does God navigate that open future, right? And this is where I, I push back against people who say, open theists believe God doesn't know the future. Well, God's omni-resourcefulness says the opposite of that. It says, no matter what free agents do, God is wise enough, intelligent enough to navigate a future, a world of true becoming, a future that is partly up to free agents. Pays attention enough and is involved enough. Yeah, yep. exactly. So this is not mm. a limitation on God. Like mm. a lot of times open theists have used the language of God limits God's self but I don't see this as a limitation. I actually see this as a maximization of God's intelligence and wisdom. Mm -hmm. God is maximally able to navigate the almost innumerable variables in a universe, a world of true becoming, right? Mm -hmm. I think that, that maximizes God's power and wisdom, not minimalizes it. So that's mm -hmm. the O. Uh, the S is where I push back against the idea of sovereignty, mm -hmm. right? Oftentimes sovereignty is co-opted by Calvinists to mean coercive unilateral control. Mm. It must mean that God is meticulously determining every event in history. Mm. It must mean that. But I don't see sovereignty that way at all. And I don't, and open theists don't see sovereignty that way at all. Mm. We don't say that a nation is sovereign 
a nation that is sovereign controls every other nation. Yeah. We say that a nation is that sovereign is independent and controls itself, yeah. has mm. control within its own boundaries, right? Yes. So I see God as sovereign, as God is free. God is free and God is sovereign. God determines God's self and God is free enough to not be bounded by the future, right? In a mm. future that is completely determined, God is bound by that future too. The possibility of a, um, a, a well-adjusted as opposed to a maladjusted God. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Yes. Mm. So, um, so, I, so I push back against the kind of exclusive use of the word sovereignty for mm. determinists. Yeah. And then the other S is sequence. So this is where we get into maybe some charismatic theology. So I, I believe mm. that God experiences some form of sequence. And I see this reflected in the scriptures. I, I give an example in the video of Moses's interaction in Exodus. God appears to Moses and God says, I want you to go back to Israel, the elders of Israel, and say to them that I'm going to free them through you. And Moses is like, they're not going to believe me. <laughs> you know, who would believe me, right? Like I'm someone who grew up in Pharaoh's household. I fled, I murdered someone. Why would they believe me? And God's like, I'm going to give you a sign. So, you know, throw down your staff. It's going to become a snake. You pick it up, staff again, right? Mm. But then he says, if that doesn't work, let me give you two more signs. <laughs> and this is so curious, right? Mm. So he gives him two more signs. Put your hand in your cloak. It's leopardous. Take it out. Leopardous, right? And he says, if those first two don't work, try the third one. Mm. Mm. What? I mean, this is such a strange interaction, right? Mm -hmm. If you're Moses, you have to be like, God, do you not know how many signs it takes to convince the elders of Israel? <laughs> so so I, I would interject there and say um, Moses in starting to discover God doesn't have the benefits of good Lord Calvin and company to have guided him <laughs> to know that God is confused in that certainty. So Right, right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But, you know, I, I'm not, um, th this is something else I push back on in the video. I'm not a biblical literalist. I don't yeah. take these things literally. I understand that there are anthropomorphisms and even anthropopovisms, which is the attributing of human emotions to God. I understand that there's a, these are literary devices in the Bible, but, but they have to reveal something. If we believe that scripture reveals who God is, if we believe that at all, even at, at a base level, what does that reveal about God? And what I say in, in, the, in the video is that it at least reveals that God is uh, experiencing some form of sequence. There's a before and after in God's experience. And I think this is, this is throughout open theism has been a, a staple of our, of our beliefs. Um, even in the incarnation, right? How can you be an Orthodox Christian and not believe that there is a before the incarnation and an after the incarnation? Let alone mm. the sequence in the and during the incarnation. Yeah. Right. Mm. I mean, it, isn't there a time before which God was incarnate in Christ? Because Christ is a historical person mm. who showed up in in Judeo Palestine in the first century, right? Mm. So that's that's a point in time. So there's a time before God showed up in Jesus, and there's a time after that. 
Yeah. At the very minimum, you have to believe that there's there's that much sequence in God, right? And, and honestly, mm. the, the abandonment of Christ doesn't make sense without sequence. The fact that he would literally be sweating blood in the angst, basically <laughs> going, I, I thought you called me. We're going to save this nation. I've longed to take them under my arms and well, I'm going to be put to death. What the fuck? Right. You know? right. Like, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm very sure that Christ prayed the equivalent of that prayer. Yes. You know? Yes. Which wouldn't make sense if he's like, yeah. <laughs> Whatever guys I got. Whatever this. the Aramaic version of of WTF WTF yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the inflection of the Eloi, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So yeah, sequence mm. is a big thing. And and mm. and I'll tell you an anecdote. Here's an yeah. anecdote. In 2007, uh, Thomas J. Ord, um, he co-directed a conference in Boston that I attended as a college student, as a seminary student, called the Open Theology and Science Conference. John Polkinghorne was the keynote speaker, and there were some debates at that conference between Calvinists and open theists. One of those debates was one of my professors. One of my professors from Gordon-Conwell was the Calvinist debating John Sanders, the mm -hmm. open theist. And after the debate, there was a bit of Q&A, and I'll never forget this interaction. This interaction is gold. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so uh, uh, John, Jeff, wait, what was it? Davis, mm -hmm. Professor Davis. I'll, I'll just, I don't remember his first name. Professor Davies, Davies um, he said to the crowd, he said to the audience, you open theists, let the philosophical tale wag the biblical dog. That's what he said. Those are fighting wow. words to evangelicals. Oh, We're like, wait a second, hold on. Yeah. We believe in the Bible, buddy. So, um, so Greg Boyd stood up. Greg Boyd raised his hand and Greg Boyd was like two rows behind me. I think he stood up and he said, we don't want to do that. We want, we want to be faithful to scripture. So why don't you tell us where in the Bible it teaches that God is timeless. You argued in your debate, God is timeless. God is outside of time. Where's it, where does it say that in the Bible? And professor Davies said, well, well, you know, you believe in creation ex nihilo, right? And T.J. Ord, Tom Ord, I'll never forget, Tom Ord said, well, actually, you have to answer his question. You're asking him a question in response yep. to his question. Yep. He moderated, right? Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Uh, Professor Davis said, well, <clears throat> John 1-1. He kind of threw his hands up like, well, John 1-1. And you could see all across the auditorium, heads, you know, heads being scratched and, and you know, beards being, being stroked and people going, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. How on earth does that teach timelessness? Hmm. I mean, in the beginning, sounds like a statement of time, doesn't it? it it's yeah. like, it doesn't, it doesn't say before there was time hmm. in the beginning. Hmm. And, and even if you took that to mean some kind of before creation, right? Hmm. How would that teach timelessness? Hmm. It just wouldn't. So we all we all sat there just kind of going, John 1, 1, that's your proof text for timelessness? And, and, and in fairness, it, it relies, you know, to, to arrive at timelessness is a, is a deduction. It is not directly right. supported. Exactly. And, and, mm. to, and so he lets it, the philosophical tale wag the biblical dog. <laughs> totally, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was Boyd's point. Boyd's point yeah. was to say, you're the one letting the philosophical mm. tale wag the biblical dog, not us. If you read the Bible from any sort of standpoint, as an evangelical, that there's authority in the scriptures, that there's revelation in the scriptures, right? Then you have to believe that God experiences time. 
Hmm. Because it's right there in the text. I mean, look at, uh, I, in, the, in, the, in the video, I quote Second um, Peter, who quotes uh, a prophet. I can't remember which prophet it was. Um, but Second Peter says, a day is as a thousand years unto the Lord. It doesn't say God doesn't experience time. It says God experiences time differently than we do. So that's, cool. that's, the, um, that's the S. The final one is where there's a bit of an internal debate within open theism. Uh, I'll, I'll catch you up briefly on this. Um, there's a big debate in open theism, within open theism about impassibility. So mm. I, I kind of think of like uh, Moltmann as really a before and after Moltmann, before and after the crucified God, right? Before the crucified God, most reformed theolo theologians, and, and I count Moltmann as, as somewhat reformed, although he's a panentheist. But um, he's, he's a participant before, protester, really. I mean, he's coming from within <laughs> and he's, he's going a step beyond. Right, exactly. So before the crucified God, impassibility was taken for granted. It was the, the law of the land. The crucified God, I think, drove a stake in the heart of impassibility. And after the crucified God, you had what's called the new orthodoxy, right? People, people started assuming that God is passable, right? Well, well haven't you read the crucified God? <laughs> mm. You know, people would say, haven't you read the crucified God? So, um, so, so then in the 90s, I think you had a resurgence of theologians trying to, trying to um, recapture impassibility, reclaim impassibility. Uh, some, of the, some of the theologians that are coming to mind are like Creel, and Winami, Win Win mm -hmm. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, mm. but there's some, there's some books written to mm. recapture and reclaim impassibility. Mm. And so mm. within open theism, there, mm. there are groups, there are camps, mm. and one camp would be very pro-passability. God mm. is passable. And even yeah. there's, a, even there's a, a, a Four Views book so, so let's, that, let, uh, let, let, let's dial that back one second. Passibility in passibility is about God experiencing emotion, God responding, exactly. God moving. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. So mm. impassibility pairs closely with immutability. Yeah. Usually when people talk about immutability, they immediately go move on to impassibility. Yeah. Yeah. Immutability, he, God doesn't change. Mm. Impassibility, God doesn't experience emotions. Yeah. God yeah. cannot be affected. God cannot be harmed. Um, right. God... Mm. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. So for years, years and years and years, probably 10 years, there was a, mm. there was a vehement debate within open theist circles, open and relational circles, about how far do we take impassibility, uh, right? Mm. Is God, because process theism would say God is so passable, God is not God without the world. Mm. God and the world are in this codependent relationship, mm. that God needs the world to be God as much as the world needs God to be the world. And open theists have, have traditionally, especially the open theists who emerged in the late 90s in the post-conservative evangelicalism, have pushed back against that and said, no, 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 no. We believe in creation ex nihilo. We believe God is apart from and other from creation and has, and has power over creation to yep. an extent, right? Yep. So there's, mm -hmm. there's a divide there. Mm -hmm. um, so someone like Thomas J. Ord comes along and he proposes a, a, another way. He calls it he calls it essential kenosis. His view is what he's, he views as a moderating position between process theism and, and classical open theism, <laughs> classical open theism, the open theism from the 90s, right? Uh, he sees it as, as a middle way. 
And, and, and that, that disturbed some people in the open theist community. So we had this vigorous debate. And what came out of that debate was this idea of equanimity being an important check on, impass, uh, on passability. God is passable. God experiences emotions. But equanimity means that God is not overcome by emotions. That God is, God is free in the very psychological, psychological way. God is not codependent. God is not enmeshed. Like, you know, enmeshment is a, is a psychological mm. term. God is not enmeshed with humanity. God is able to free humanity from sin because God is not caught up in sin, right? Or, or, or same with death, right? God yeah. is able to free humanity from death because God is not enmeshed in death. Mm. So equanimity, so the E in rose mm. applies to both God's emotional life, that mm. God has an emotional life, yeah. and God experiences equanimity. And again, yeah, I would, um, um, you, you've possibly covered this. So, um, you know, I haven't engaged your stuff beyond this conversation and then, and that video. Um, but fundamentally, if you um, consider the language of humanity as uh, embargo and similitude, image and likeness of, of God, and then you fast forward to the idea of, uh, of Christ, he's, he is the image of God. He's fully human, fully, fully divine there's a, a level of cooperation and partnership there that puts the two there so much so that god goes i've raised you to the right hand of god in your humanity as well it's not just a restoration of some kind of divine position that has been given up in the incarnation it's right. actually an eleva eleva elevation of humanity and so in eastern theology there's the language of deification all that kind of stuff when we don't yeah to get in, the into that uh theosis, theosis yeah, yeah. But yeah. in the West, yeah, there's a bit of a reclamation of that. And to talk about the equanimity, equanimity is to basically mm -hmm. start talking about the fact that, that we are taking seriously and, and perhaps within the West for the first time, really, to start take seriously the notion that God wants humanity to stand alongside God as God. And again, yeah. if you go back to the Moses' language, what is that? You will be as God to them mm -hmm. and yeah. your buddy as your, as your prophet. So even in that, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a longstanding view and, mm -hmm. and one is just picking up on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Someone who's helped me in that regard is uh, Michael Gorman. Michael Gorman has a fantastic book um, uh, on this subject. He started with a book called Cruciformity. Um, and mm -hmm. then he has a book and I'm pretty sure it's on my shelf behind me. Because I, I keep my Michael Gorman close by. Um, but it's called um, Paul and the... Oh, here we go. Found it. This is it right here. Inhabiting the Cruciform God. The subtitle is Kenosis, Justification, and Theosis in Paul's Narrative Soteriology. There's a mouthful. Mm. Okay. Kenosis, justification, and theosis in Paul's narrative soteriology. So like you were saying, Tim, um, in the West, there's a reclaiming of uh, theosis, an Eastern, a mostly Eastern theology, but he's bringing it into Western theology through Pauline narrative theology, through cruciformity and through justification. Um, I would say that Gorman is a par participationist. So there's 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 camps in you know in Pauline theology there's camps and mm. and one of those camps is the participationist camp and that's where yep. Borman would probably situate himself. 
Um, I, I, I'm aware that you're probably reaching the time to go. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I just want to be sensitive to that. But um, any parting words? <laughs> mm. Well, I would say that um, the, the video ends where I like to end with um, what, is the, what is the cash value of open and relational theology? Where does the rubber meet the road? And I think that some of the areas where I, I touch on in the video are areas that are very meaningful to people in everyday life. Mm. Prayer, the problem of evil, uh, discernment, mm. you know, um, activism, right? Mm. What do we do as Christians um, that, that reveals and actually activates our faith? We mm. pray, we, we work, we serve, mm. Um, we discern, we pray, right? So um, mm. these are areas where open theism makes a huge difference in people's lives. Um, mm. Thinking about like big decisions in your life, taking a job or moving or marrying someone. These are questions that plague Christians, right? Uh, am I going to get mm. God's will right? God's perfect sovereign will from all eternity. Well, if you believe that God has given you the freedom, the capacity to make wise choices. And God is walking alongside you uh, in informing those, those decisions in real time mm. by God's spirit. Well, then you don't have that same level of anxiety to get things right. And you know that if, even if you do get them wrong, God is not like, oh, the whole plan is ruined. You got that <laughs> one choice wrong. You know, yeah. God is wise enough to able to, gu to guide you in a new direction. Mm. And, and mm. maybe that, that detour God will redeem that detour and, and, and teach you something through that midst of that, right? So um, I, think these, I think the cash value of theism is almost immeasurable in Christianity. Uh, the problem of evil is given a lot of relief. Um, uh, the way that Pennick puts it, I think, as well, is that we don't have to believe that atrocities were God's will. We don't have to believe that. We can believe that they were not God's will. Um, and, they, and they were not foreknown as a certainty, that they must happen. They didn't have to happen. And certainly anyone, again, who would take Christ seriously, um, you, you cannot picture a, a Jesus that goes about healing lepers as though, you know, God is around doing this. He certainly doesn't treat anything like that as well. And by implication, whether he's telling a parable of the Good Samaritan or anything like that, there's no attribution to God for any of that kind of stuff. Although there is right. that uh, bit of a debate with the, the blind person, you know, potentially right. being given yeah. from from birth and that. So so um, so so one's not closing down the possibility of how God goes about working in and through those things, but one is opening up the possibility that maybe God is not this dysfunctional, maladjusted individual that's going to give you cancer <laughs> to teach you love kind of thing. You know, that's right. That's, you, you know, so so it takes those kind of things a step further in terms of relationality. The other thing that I would say is, is for many of us, we get caught up in our story. And, and mm. those of us that are married uh, or have been married really uh, have a, a sense of appreciation about this, how I, we can have developed a story about our partner or about ourselves in the relationship. And that story is deeply affects how we go about relating not only right. to ourselves, each other, our work, et cetera, et cetera. And the mm. reality is that, that we often relate to God through the story that we have of God rather right. than stripping that story away allowing the opportunity to build a new story out of a place of deep connection and relational vulnerability and through entering into living and loving together and that adventure of life. And, and, and although that can be the case between us as people, and it certainly is if we look at all the divisions in the world, the ongoing 
violence and narrative amongst people groups and that kind of stuff, they're all related to a story. You know, so I can be born today, you can be born where you are, but the minute we attach our the story of our heritage, suddenly we can have a break in relationship. And we certainly right. we know a lot of those things that are out there. And in many ways, what open and relational theology does here is it invites us to consider, at least consider the possibility that God the, that God is not like that. And it creates a new story that is potentially enabling for us to move together in relationship. Yeah. Mm. What, if, what if God is not a control freak? Yeah. Mm. What if God is not an all determining, <laughs> unilaterally deciding control freak? What if instead God wants to partner with humanity in the unfolding of the future? I mean, that just completely changes your framework for how you relate to God. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I so I, I would, I would, encourage people to at least um, be open to the idea that um, open and relational theology could inform their faith in a positive way. Well, I must say, TC, on that, uh, on that wonderful note, um, thank you so much for taking the risk to join a group like us on the other end of the, well, on two other <laughs> ends of the world yeah. to, to share your, your process so vulnerably, um, your journey so deeply as well. And to really mm. just uh, get into these these ideas with us, I, I I really value it and appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed connecting with you, yeah. Mm. And uh, and like I've said to to many of our participants or many of our the people that we posted, this is a great initial conversation, and I'm I'm looking forward to to more, however they happen. Well, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate the invite. <laughs>